0: means to an end the rise and fall of the architectural project of the city by Pierre Vittorio Aureli. And this is an introduction to the book, the city as a project, um, which is an edited uh, version of his PhD students at Belaga. And it's published by Ruby press in 2013. In recent years, the city has become a popular topic within architectural culture. We have grown familiar with the mantra that today, more than half of the world's population lives in cities. Yet apart from the visualization of explosive urbanization, there has been very little effort within within the architecture community to understand the social and political raison d'etre of urbanization. Building on the legacy of pioneering urban research such as Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown's Learning from Las Vegas and Rem Koolhaas's Delirious New York, countless architects have mapped extreme urban conditions without understanding how these urban conditions were the product of specific political intentions hidden behind the spectacle of deregulated, i.e. market-driven urbanisation. And there's a footnote that refers to Delirious New York and Learning from Las Vegas, where he says, the list of works that have been influenced by these two pioneering books is countless. Perhaps it would be sufficient to mention two. Rem Koolhaas, Stefano Boeri, Samford Quinter, blah, 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 um, the book Mutations, and Ricky Burgett and Dayan Sujic, uh, The Endless City. Unlike other political ideologies, the market ideology has always been argued, not as an idea, but as a fact, as an objective condition. Um, Side note, that's pretty much the thesis of Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. Assuming urban, urban chaos as a given has been a problem for many arguments on the city put forward by architects. Our inability to give form to the city has presented as a historical inevitability a fate accompli. The apparent informality of the late 20th century city and the political logic of laissez-faire urban politics were far from being unplanned. Rather, they were the result of a specific political will. Failure to understand this has made architects comfortable to stay within the limits of their profession. And there's a footnote that says, the idea that cities are no longer planned is one of the biggest illusions that architects have cultivated in the last 40 years. It is true that the possibility of planning cities as a legible project declined with the rise of neoliberal policies in the 1980s. However, rather than disappearing altogether, planning has transformed itself into a state driven lubricant whose ideological goal is to demonstrate the inferiority of the state in relation to the market. See Contradictions in Neoliberal Planning from 2008, edited by Tuna Tussoncock and Guy Byshin. The more architects have celebrated the urban condition as ungovernable, the more they created the perfect alibi for themselves to retreat in their professional mandate to pretend that their work consists of pragmatically answering the demands of their client. Robert Venturi summarised this situation with acute cynicism when he said that, quote, the architect's ever-diminishing power and his growing ineffectualness in shaping the whole environment can perhaps be reversed, ironically, by narrowing his concerns and concentrating on his own job. Quote. In the last decade, a new mainstream discourse has emerged against such a position, this time centred on the architect as activist. Especially since the 2007 economic recession, when the pitfalls of the neoliberal economy became evident, a new generation of architects has advocated a more socially driven practice. They understand their position to be emancipated from architecture's traditional task, designing buildings, and invested with the mission to address urgent issues that lie beyond architecture. Identified as the, quote, architect as activist, this position is made of sometimes radically different approaches that cannot reasonably be lumped into a single movement. Yet a recurring argument put forward by these practices asserts the growing ineffectualness of architecture in offering answers to social and political problems. Such a claim inevitably implies a critique, not only of the status of contemporary design, but also of what architectural culture has been in the course of its historical development. So, um, just as a footnote, he has given an example of these, like, architect-as-activist books, and one is Jeremy Till's um, uh, Spatial Agency, Other Ways of Doing Architecture from 2011, And and others by Marcus Meissen, they usually have spatial practices in the title. Although I sympathise more with the social ambitions of the architects as activists than with the uncritical celebration of the city as a mere conglomerate of complexities and contradictions, I believe that both still underestimate, in good or bad faith, the power of architecture even in its traditional format as a discipline concerned with the design of buildings, to influence the reality of our urban condition. In the notes that follow, I argue that architecture has had a decisive role in forming ideas, concepts, and paradigms through which the city has evolved. First in the West and then on a global scale. I especially focus on theories and strategies of architecture rather than architecture as buildings. This focus on architectural theory in the form of treatises on architecture is motivated by the fact that it is precisely by being presented as theory or as a strategy independent of its realization that architecture has become not simply a practice but a project. A project is a strategy on whose basis something must be produced or brought out. The project thus addresses a potential future situation, but in doing this it seeks to organise the available means towards a possible end. While in ancient times there was no difference between concept and building, Since the 15th century, for reasons on which I'll elaborate later, conception, the moment of design, became independent from building itself. If practicing the project means putting forward something that does not exist yet, such an act of anticipation has taken the form of all those means, plans, drawings, images, texts that are necessary in order to construct the vision of a future reality. Yet it is exactly as anticipation of a reality yet to come, that the project is also a reality in itself. The project is the sine qua non of the production of architecture. It gives form and reproduces a shared and thus collective knowledge that is irreducible to what is realized in the form of buildings and design objects. The project has always been an ambivalent framework. It has always been an act of both emancipation from and domination over a given social and political situation. Within the project, the act of emancipation and the will to domination are impossible to disentangle. Above all, architecture as knowledge is here seen as a strategic device through which the forces at stake in the development of the city are made visible. It is exactly when these forces become critically understandable that the architectural project is no longer just a means to an end but also a possibility for disentangling the means from their presupposed ends towards an alternative project for the city. There is a fundamental difference between the simple practice of building and architecture itself. Architecture was invented by Vitruvius in the late 1st century BC. There had been attempts to write about architecture before Vitruvius, but Vitruvius' approach can be considered definitive because because of his intention to construct an encyclopedic knowledge of architecture in his De Architectura Libri Decem. Vitruvius was one of the first writers to apply the framework of an encyclopedia to his work. The term encyclopedia comes from the Greek Enchiclospedia, whose literal translation is quote within the circle of knowledge. Architecture as a comprehensive knowledge of the physical world thus became one of the first examples of the systemization, the architecture of knowledge itself. This aspect is even emphasized by the form of the treatise as libri decim or ten books. As reconstructed by Indra Cargus McEwan, in its original form, Vitruvius's De Architectura was manufactured as ten scrolls arranged according to the Pythagorean diagram of the tetrastis, a triangular figure consisting of ten points composed in four rows. This arrangement, in itself, expressed the idea of perfection and completeness the circle that the framework of an encyclopedia evokes to its readers. It is easy to associate this diagram with one of the most essential archetypes of architecture, the pediment. In Greek and Roman civilization, the pediment was, sorry, just as a side note, it is, just in case you were thinking that the internet had all the information, it is impossible to find the reconstruction of these 10 scrolls in a triangle um, on the internet. But there is a photo in this book and also from McEwan's, uh book uh, called Vitruvius, Writing the Body of Architecture, which is worth looking up. In Greek and Roman civilization, the pediment was precisely the architectural form in which architecture best expressed its wholeness, its definitive completeness. Until Palladio systematically applied the pediment to profane architecture, the pediment was the privileged form of sacred buildings. This will to perfection through which Vitruvius aimed to address architecture as a coherent body of knowledge becomes even more poignant when we think about the historical period in which Vitruvius wrote his book. He witnessed the end of a hundred years of civil war and the passage from the Republic to the Empire. In the opening line of De Architectura dedicates the book, Uh, He dedicates the book to Rome's first emperor, Augustus. Here, Vitruvius mentions something that may explain why he felt it necessary to write a systematic book on architecture. Quote, When your highness's divine mind and power, O Caesar, gained the empire of the world, Rome gloried in your triumph and victory for all her enemies were crushed by your invincible courage and all mankind obeyed your bidding. The Roman people and senate were not only freed but followed your guidance, inspired as it was by a generous imagination. Amid such affairs, I shrank from publishing my writings on architecture in which I displayed designs made to a large scale, for I feared lest, by interrupting at an inconvenient time I should be found a hindrance to your thoughts. Vitruvius refers here to the Civil War, which Augustus ended with his military and political manoeuvring. A fundamental trigger of the civil wars that ended the Roman Republic was the social, cultural, and above all, religious relativism that allowed the Romans to conquer and include in their political system foreign populations, but also made their domination very fragile. Augustus's rise to power as the first emperor meant the construction of a new political body in which not only military power, but also social and cultural engineering played a fundamental role. Vitruvius's endeavour was part of a general reassessment of knowledge in light of a new and extremely centralised political system. The systemic character of the encyclopedia through which Vitruvius invented architecture as a discernible discipline was both an analogical reflection of the new status quo and an answer to the threat of conflict and disorder that helped Augustus to take power. What was at stake in this historical passage was the preservation of a civilization through the radical restructuring and reorganisation of its civil institutions. Vitruvius pursued this restructuring from within the medium itself by privileging writing as the form of architecture. Compared to oral transmission, writing empowered knowledge with authority. In this way, architecture was no longer just the art of building, which has always been practised by an authorless community, but the product of clearly recognisable authors. The concept author refers both to the authority who has conceived the project, the architect, and to the authority that supports the construction of a building. In the first book of De Architectura, Vitruvius distinguished between Fabrica and Ration Sinatio. While Fabrica refers to the practice of building, Sinatio refers to reasoning, the concept of the building before it is realized. Here, for the first time, the idea of the project is addressed in all its potential by being separated from the routine act of building. Architecture becomes a way of thinking about the world in which, as in rhetoric, what is created is not an object, but discourse itself. This is why Vitruvius insistently uses categories that come from rhetoric such as ordinatio, or ordering, and dispositio, arrangement. The idea of authority is not only expressed through the materiality of what is built, but also through that which signifies built matter. That is to say, the idea that transforms matter into an organised form. Vitruvius addresses authority as a semantic field that transcends the difference between designer and patron and instead emphasises the political authority that the construction of a building represents and makes legible. Not by chance, two of the 10 books are dedicated to the use of what Vitruvius defined as genera or types, which later would be called classical orders. The orders were used mostly for sacred architecture, and it was precisely within the reorganization of religious cults, from the pluralism of the republic to a more centralized administration that Augustus sought the strengthening of the imperial body. The correct use of the orders following the Greek canon was thus the central analogy of the idea of order. There's a footnote that says, This has often been interpreted as the outcome of the author's outdated taste for architecture vis-a-vis the more pluralistic character of Roman architecture. With their inherent system of proportions the orders were assumed by Vitruvius not only as a structural system but also as the guarantee that the building is the expression of coherence. Vitruvius's genera refer not just to the column but also to the post and lintel system. As such, the order becomes a veritable grammar through which the building acquires not simply a structural system but a clear and measurable representation of its appearance. In this way, architecture itself as a grammar addresses the virtue and effectiveness of a clear political governance in which all the potentially conflicting parts are reunited into a coherent corpus or body, a word that Vitruvius repeats obsessively in his book. Reasoning is for Vitruvius the fundamental core of architecture because it is precisely through reasoning that the different scales and fields of applications of architectural knowledge can be reunited within one discipline. And yet this insistence on measure and order is in the end dialectically connected with the possibility of instability and uncertainty. In the last part of the treatise. Vitruvius discusses the design of war machines and warfare strategies and affirms another fundamental principle, selertia, or salutia, resourcefulness or ingenuity. The ability of the architect to respond to unpredictable situations such as those that arise during a military conflict. It is in this field of application that architectural knowledge reveals its full versatility in constantly reforming its strategies. Solertia Solertia, makes clear that no principle can be considered unchangeable, but rather that each needs to be constantly redefined in light of the uncertainty in which the architect operates. While the opening lines of Vitruvius' book refer to the conflicts that marked Augustus' victory, the concluding paragraph is dedicated to the siege of Marseille, one of the last free city-states on the Mediterranean to surrender to Rome. Here, the management of conflict becomes the summer of architectural expertise. It becomes clear how Vitruvius's encyclopaedic organisation of architectural knowledge goes far beyond the static image of monumental architecture to extend itself across different fields and scales, the building, the city, the management of time and warfare. The project is the act that mobilises all these fields and that can be directed by an authority. From the beginning, architecture as a discipline was conceived as a nexus made of governance, organization, and authority. In order to perform in this way, architecture must become more logos than matter. The passage from building to writing represented by Vitruvius's De Architectura means precisely this, a shift from empirical practice to theoretical rationalization. Vitruvius's invention of architecture was the fundamental precedent for the conception of architecture as a project in the 15th century. Vitruvius's work became not only the major literary source for the resurrection of ancient architecture, but also an argument for the legitimization of the profession of architecture as a liberal art. In the eyes of humanist intellectuals, Vitruvius's will to systemization had the potential to define the role of architecture as an organisational device in the rise of a new urban reality. In order to understand how Vitruvius's theory resonated within architectural culture in the 15th century, we need to understand the social and political context in which the idea of the project was born. The recuperation of the project of architecture was motivated, above all, by the transformation of cities that followed the post-Roman, quote, dark ages. A decisive factor in the city's rebirth in the West was the centrality of labor and production within medieval society. I'm sorry, I just got really excited because in my peripheral vision, I can see a footnote by Le Goff, about Le Goff. Whereas in ancient times, labour and production had not existed as jur- juridical and social frameworks, with the spread of Christianity on the one hand and feudalism on the other, labour became the sine qua of the social order. Footnote. On this issue, see the fundamental study by Jacques Le Goff, Time, Work and Culture in the Middle Ages. If I had actually read this footnote. I might have found Le Goff 10 years before I did. (laughs) However, However, it was only with the great demographic crisis of the 14th century, of which the plague of 1348 was the most dramatic, that production became the crucial basis of social government. Marx famously described the progressive emancipation of peasants from their feudal ties They immigrated to cities and offered their labour skills as, quote, free citizens. However, as Marx noted, this free offering of labour was conditioned by the situation in which the urban proletariat found itself, deprived of the means of production. The bourgeoisie, the class that, as the name declares, comes from the city, is the absolute protagonist of the rebirth of cities in the Middle Ages and established itself as a subject who owned the means of production. For this reason, the political affirmation of the bourgeoisie is characterised by a profound dilemma. Dilemma. On the one hand, the rise of the bourgeoisie triggered the affirmation of unprecedented individual liberties against the prerogatives of both the church and feudal power. On the other hand, once it had organised itself as a political subject in the form of the commune, the bourgeoisie based its political power on the exploitation of the new urban proletariat. The urgent need to reform the city in order to economically manage and politically contain the emerging working class became a fundamental trigger for the rediscovery of the project of the city. In 1378, the Ciompi, or Ciompi, I'm not sure, the wool workers of the Florentine textile industry provoked a tumult that the historian Ernesto Screpanti has defined as the first modern proletarian revolution. It exploded within what, at the time, was the most capitalistic developed place in the world. Indeed, class interests, the Chiompi demanded an improvement in their working conditions and higher wages, drove the wool workers' insurgency against an oligarchic republic that defended the rights of the owners to the means of production. The revolt of the Ciompi clearly illustrates what is at stake in the project of the city that began in the 15th century, namely, the possibility of an urban order that would allow the city to be not only governable, but also productive. It is not by chance that the 15th century rediscovery of Vitruvius's project of architecture happened in this context. Architectural knowledge became the possibility to efficiently spatialize political and social power, not only in the actual form of the city, but also through the process of its making. This possibility becomes clear in Brunelleschi's architectural language, which, unlike medieval and Gothic architecture, is radically syntactical. The architectural revolution started by Brunelleschi consisted of the quote, rational coordination of building parts within a coherent whole. The instrument of such coordination was the systematic use of columns and arches. The latter always inscribed within a half square. In this way, Brunelleschi introduced an architectural language in which every building was dominated by an overall designio or disegno. For example, the entire Ospedale degli Innocenti is determined by the module clearly exhibited in the loggia facing the piazza. Brunelleschi's use of standardised decorative elements made the grey abstract colour of Pietra Serena deprived the builders, sorry, Brunelleschi's use of standardised decorative elements made of the grey abstract colour of Pietra Serena deprived the builders' guilds of its artistic autonomy in favour of a total design controlled by the architect. Brunelleschi, who was familiar with ancient Roman architecture, took from it the possibility of a design method. Yet Roman architecture was not as systematic as Brunelleschi understood it. Yes! (laughs) Andrew! (laughs) Apart from crucial buildings such as the Colosseum, which shows a coherent stacking of different orders, the ruins of ancient Roman architecture demonstrate a much greater variety, irreducible to the grammar of the classical orders. Brunelleschi's architectural language is instead based on a strict modularity within which ornament becomes a device used to visually confirm the relationship between each element and the whole system. In Brunelleschi's architecture, the building is no longer a singular and finite artefact, but a system that can expand ad infinitum, infinitum. (laughs) And there's a photo of um, Brunelleschi interior showing that Rhythm of columns that is uh, repeated with the semicircular arch. If Roman architecture provided clues for a syntactic architecture in the form of repeatable architecture elements, Brunelleschi's quote-unquote invention of perspective allowed him to abstract the building logic in the form of a three-dimensional grid. Um, And let's just keep in mind that Vitruvius mentions perspective lines um, and vanishing points in the 10 books. For this reason, Brunelleschi imagined the building not as a space enclosed by walls, but as a skeleton made of clearly defined structural lines. This approach was not only motivated by the desire to determine the form of the building within a coherent design, but also by the will to control the building process by reducing the role of the builders to the execution of a predefined scheme. For this reason, Brunelleschi can be considered the first modern architect. He clearly understood the power of the project as something independent from the process of building. Before the advent of the architect, conceiving and materially making a building coincided in the same process, carried on by a collective body such as the members of the Guild of Wood and Stone Workers. This condition changed with the advent of architecture as a project, when the, the a priori conception of a building was concentrated in the hands of one figure, closer to an intellectual than a craftsman the architect. A well known episode around 1420 found Brunelleschi opposed by the laborers building the cupola of Santa Maria del Fiore. Brunelleschi forced the workers to endure unbear- unbearably long working hours. The workers revolted against the architect. Brunelleschi resolved the conflict to his advantage by hiring cheaper cheaper workers from Lombardy, thus forcing the rebellious workers to return to work at a lower wage. Such an episode is just one example that shows how the architectural project not only addresses the realisation of a building, but is in itself an apparatus of social control. From this moment on, the project of the city was put forward not only through large-scale schemes, but also and especially by the search for a coherent architectural language. Unlike Vitruvius' De Architectura, almost no architectural treaties written during the Renaissance included city planning. Yet it is clear that the systematic approach to architecture put forward by these books is strongly motivated by the will to plan the city as a coherent whole. Leon Battista Alberti's famous comparison in the first book of De Re Edificatoria between the form of the city and the form of a building is more than a brilliant metaphor. What Alberti postulated was the possibility to conceive architecture as a language that would make the urban form legible as an overarching system. This coherence is manifest in what, from Alberti on, would become the core of Renaissance architectural theory, the architecture of the orders. In accordance with Vitruvius, Alberti conceived an architectural order as not just the single column that supports a fragment of the architrave, as represented in all of the architectural treaties since Sebastiano Serlo, Serlio's fourth book, but the entire system formed by columns and architraves. The logic of the architectural orders, as theorised by Alberti, can be thus associated to a grid with variable proportions, from the squat Tuscan to the slender Corinthian. Moreover, Alberti did not understand the orders as structural load-bearing elements, but as ornament. Following examples of ancient Roman buildings such as the Colosseum, Alberti was the first architect in modern times to postulate a difference between the post-lintel system, which he conceived of as ornament, and the structural wall. In this way, the even geometry of a grid made of vertically stacked orders is independent from the structure of the building itself. So that's um, where I guess that saying comes from, that um, a building should look, Alberti said that a building should look like it stands up. Because um, as PV is saying, where um, the structural wall is independent of the vertically stacked orders, this understanding of the orders can be seen at work in the facade of the Palazzo Riccioli. Here, Alberti united different properties acquired by the same family by superimposing a coherent façade system on the existing buildings and introducing for the first time the use of orders in domestic architecture. Alberti transformed the model of the Roman Colosseum into an envelope with a civic orientation rationalising the interface between street and building by wrapping the latter in a repetitive, simple and seemingly extendable surface without regard for the uneven geometry of the block itself. The explicit flatness stresses the facade's role as mere ornament that mediates between private property and public space by a rational rational measurable order, and not by the figure of the building itself. For this reason, Palazzo Riccioli is the archetype of a new modern bourgeois mercantilist way of dealing with public space, not through confrontation, but through negotiation. The rational basis for this negotiation is the grid, which ideally extends the logic of the single building into the continuous order of the city structure. It was precisely at the peak of its glory that the architectural project manifested through the grammar of the orders entered a crisis. The crisis of the orders was a slow agony, but its first symptoms are clearly visible in the theoretical work of Sebastiano Serlio, the theorist par excellence of Renaissance architecture. Serlio's approach is radically different from that of Vitruvius or Alberti. He was the first theorist who presented the orders in the way they have been presented in all subsequent treaties, as a single column topped with a fragment of the architrave. This different presentation of the orders implies a much more flexible use, and yet it is precisely in this need for flexibility, that we can read the order's growing powerlessness in containing and framing the new emerging urban condition. In Serlio's time, the Western city was witnessing the bourgeois rise to power, a process which deeply transformed the relationship between the house and the city. There's a footnote on that that says, on the relationship between Serlio's theory and the city, see James Ackerman. Introduction to Serlio on Domestic Architecture from 1996 Whereas in medieval times the building of a house had been left to the initiative of its inhabitants, from the 15th century housing became a political project. The search for convenient typologies became the most strategic way to improve not only social conditions but also economic development. Before Serlio, the architectural project was a matter only for important institutions or rich patrons. By contrast, Serlio took all classes into account, from the poor peasant to the king. Many of Serlio's examples of domestic architecture are devoted to the class that he defines as citizens, the emerging class of professionals such as lawyers, merchants, and artisans. Serlio proposes solutions that, while celebrating architectural modesty and restraint, also promote typological flexibility so that the houses can serve different owners or can be built to be rented by developers. Such typological flexibility, which becomes evident, especially in the houses for artisans, results in the increasing abstraction of the architectural floor plan. In these houses, architecture is reduced to a composition of bare walls, basic infrastructure for the reproduction of life. Occasional columns define the most representative spaces of the houses, but the rest is left unadorned. Serlio defines this condition of restraint as decorum, the practice of social containment that enables society to develop standards of decency and normality. Decorum guarantees that every social class can find its proper architectural accommodation. Here, architecture collaborates with power, not by representing it through monumental symbols, but by becoming its tool for the cultivation of societal well-being. Serlio did not propose a plan for the city, only architectural models. We are thus far from the Renaissance quote, ideal city, envisaged by total designs such as Filarete's plan for Sfor- Sforzinda. Serlio's city is a far less organised conglomerate of dwellings where order operates from the scale of the single house. The only views of the city that Serlio offers are in his famous models for theatre de- set design like the Sena Tragica. Senna Tragica. Here, the city appears in all its casualness. The house of the artisan is placed next to the palace of the aristocrat. Overall planning seems to disappear in favour of extreme tolerance for stylistic diversity and social coexistence. Yet the social control of the city is even more radical for being focused on the very spatial organization of the single dwelling, and thus on the everyday life of the inhabitants, addressing their most basic and ordinary needs. Cellio's emphasis on housing as the main focus of the architectural project proved prophetic in the development of the modern city. Although the sixth was the only volume of Serlio's seven books to remain unpublished, its influence has been enormous, especially in France, where Serlio lived and worked towards the end of his life. Indeed, it was in France, and especially in Paris, that the comprehensive urban project developed in the most radical way. In understanding the evolution of the architectural project in relation to the city, a comparison between Serlio's Leo's Santa Tragica and Pierre Pate's famous section of a street published in his memoir sur l'objet le plus important is telling. What these sections have in common is an obelisk, the last vestige of a symbolic architecture devoid of a formal functional program. While Serlio's view focuses on the relationship between the building facades and the wide public space, Pater's section focuses on the relationship between infrastructure, the street, sewers, the drainage system, and houses. Both cases address the space of circulation as the main datum of the city. But in Pater's case, urban space is shown in relationship with the apartment interior. In Serlio's perspective, The city is made up of clearly representative architectural forms, whereas in Patter's section, the city is represented as mere infrastructure, as an anonymous machine for living. Patter's section is not only a clear manifestation of the shift in importance from architect to engineer, but also demonstrates the expanded role of design within the organisation of the city. In this case, design is no longer manifested through, quote, figurative forms, but through generic protos- protocols that address neither belief nor ideology. These protocols are the height of the rooms, the provision of sewers, and the maintenance of the street as a clean and wide space. As the historian Antoine Picon has written, in Pater's section, the architecture of the city becomes productive work. Quote, the street became a machine regulating a set of flows, the flowing of water and the traffic of vehicles. End quote. In his memoirs, Pate described the city as a theatre of machines, an apparatus that regulates basic human needs from birth to death. Among other things, Pate proposed an efficient system for burial in which the cadaver would be entombed in the parish chapel, and then moved from there to the cemetery by a carefully organised process of corpse disposal. Patter's city is no longer the coherent body that all classicist theories on architecture put forward. It is simply a machine that reproduces and controls the life of its inhabitants. Life as such becomes the generic property that the city addresses with its functioning as infrastructure. From this moment onwards, architectural theory's main topics were concepts like distribution, economy and comfort, not moral or ideological values, but possibilities for managerial control of the population. It is precisely here that we can find the rise of urbanism as an autonomous discipline independent from architecture. Although there was not, until 1867, a theory that explicitly referred to urbanisation as a new paradigm, Ildefon Serda's general theory of urbanisation, the practice of urbanism was formed by the rise of the institution of the police. It is important to stress the etymology of the word police, which comes from the ancient Greek term for city. At first, the term was mainly linked with the possibility of ordering the city, making the city beautiful. It is not by chance that Diderot used the term in his his encyclopedia entry for beau, beautiful, police. Stands for the practice of drawing people away from barbarism by civilising them, modifying their habits and customs towards standards of decency. At the moment, the architectural treaties, with its encyclopedic ambitions, entered its final crisis. It became the model for other disciplines in their attempts to make the city not only a rational system, but also a knowable object. This is the case with Nicolas de la Trate de la Police, published in 1705. Delamere conceived the traité Treaty as a monumental encyclopedia focused on urban issues such as religion, morality, public health, food supply, urbanism and commerce. He planned to write 11 volumes. Only two were published. Unlike an architectural treatise, which would focus on principles and rules, De traité was written as an endless account of facts, an attempt to survey the city in all its contingent and pragmatic problems. The goal was the happiness of the city's inhabitants, but this happiness was immediately linked with control and prevention. The urban knowledge implied in the science of policing cannot be reduced to finite rules and principles, but can only be practised case by case. This is why Delamar was unable to finish his editorial project and why the encyclopedic knowledge of urban and juridical issues will be left forever open. While architecture focused on finite objects and finite interventions, urbanism deals with the city as a system of links and relationships where the possibility of formal representation of stable order is no longer possible. It is not difficult to see a direct relationship between, the Delamar's, between Delamar's approach to the city and Baron Haussmann's reconstruction of Paris, starting from the 1850s. After the revolutions of 1848, the managing of the city became the fundamental means to strengthen political governance. If Delamar still attempted to systemise his project of the city in the form of a treatise, Haussmann's radical transformation of Paris did not happen through a theory or a coherent plan, but through a sequence of ad hoc actions whose goal was to link urban form to the management of circulation and land speculation. Haussmann was able to propose a total project for the city without ever issuing a new legible master plan. Hausmann's Paris finally accomplished the inherent logic of what was embryonic in all Renaissance and post-Renaissance treaties on architecture. The gradual transformation of the city into a machine for the governance of its inhabitants. In Hausmann's Paris, this apparatus was crucially directly linked to real estate speculation. Public works parks, boulevards and other amenities were strategically planned to increase the value of private development. Where in previous architectural theories, governance had been invoked only in terms of public utility and safety, in Housemans, Paris, utility and safety were immediately linked to market-driven development. The role of architecture in this framework was to give, quote, guidelines to urban development through simple and tangible rules, such as the height of each floor, the section of the street and the materials for the facades. As strict as these rules may seem, their role is paradoxically to leave market-driven urban development as free as possible. Haussmann's Paris shows both the power and the dissolution of the project of the city through the project of its architectural form. Haussmann modernised Paris via a clear formal strategy in which aesthetic intentions were carefully fine-tuned to economic opportunities. At the same time, this strategy was achieved through ad hoc solutions without a consistent urban plan. The co- coherence of Hausmann's plan was in its tactical adjustment of micro-operations towards a generic economic system applicable to the whole city. This strategy was embodied in an architectural prototype that could not seem more distant from the grandeur of Haussmann's Paris, Le Corbusier's Maison Domino of 1914. More than any urban theory or urban intervention proposed in the 19th or 20th century, This simple housing model manifested and anticipated the modalities of urban development. At the beginning of the First World War, Le Corbusier imagined this prototype as the possible basic unit for the reconstruction of Europe after the war. The name of the project combined domus, house, and innovation expressing Le Corbusier's conviction that a project for the city could be developed only from within a drastic reform of domestic space. Maison Domino consists of a structural skeleton of reinforced concrete horizontal slabs and pilates. Here, architecture is reduced to its load bearing structure, while internal partitions and finishings are left to the initiative of the building's inhabitants. Maison Domino was clearly inspired by the open plan logic of early factories such as Albert Kahn's Highland Park complex. The irony of this project, which would influence all of Le Corbusier's subsequent work, is that while it did not immediately succeed as an actual proposal for mass housing, it did anticipate the most widely diffused building method of the post-war period especially in conditions of laissez-faire planning, so-called, quote, informal settlements. The Domino model has become the most effective way for dwellers to self-build their house, a possibility that has been the very raison d'etre of Le Corbusier, that had been the very raison d'etre of Le Corbusier's first sketch. What was meant to be mass-produced in the Domino was not the building, but the steel formwork for the concrete skeleton, which would be cast in situ. The domino is the embodiment of a paradox. On the one hand, it was an early example of industrial architecture in domestic space. On the other hand, this technology was extended into the domain of self-help construction. Le Corbusier industrialized not only the product, but also the process of building combining mass production and in-situ low-skilled construction work in one single process. This means that while materials and method are supported by large corporations, the building process is left to the dwellers themselves. The political strategy behind this project is clear. Maison Domino was intended to solve a shortage of workers' housing and the workers were understood to be the potential owners of their own dwellings. The Domino model inscribed private ownership, which is for capital the best way to control workers, directly on the construction process of the house itself. Here the link between urban form and economic investment already established by Haussmann's transformation of Paris, is refined at the scale of the single dwelling. This concept was unprecedented. If city planning manuals such as Camillo Sitte's City Planning According to Artistic Principles and Reinhard Baumeister's Town Extension, Extensions imagine cities as a composition of urban blocks, squares, streets and monuments, Le Corbusier was the first to conceive of city making, beginning from the basic housing unit. Ludwig Hilbersheimer later theorised this principle in his book, Grostadt Architecture. He wrote that the design of cities must address the two extreme poles of urban development, the individual cell and the overall urban circulation system. As history has shown, this model has often been used to tame and control subjects by allowing them to build their homes as cheap in the cheapest way possible, thus turning them into small entrepreneurs. Here again, the domino model was, at the time of its conception, both, both a promise and a threat. Its promise of a new beginning for an emancipated form of life was threatened by the possibility of the basic frame itself turning into a vehicle for what Walter Benjamin feared the most, the enduring logic of private property. Maison Domino is thus the most radical example of how, from the very very beginning of modern architecture, the city was designed not only through large-scale planning, but also by the micropolitics of the individual unit, the domestic space. Though conceived a century ago, the domino model presents a dilemma that the project of the city still faces today. To understand this dilemma, we need to carefully consider the iconic drawing that Le Corbusier provided as his main illustration of the project. This image shows architecture reduced to its bare minimum, quote, without qualities, anonymous, generic, devoid of any context, The image seems to put forward two possibilities simultaneously. One envisages a city completely absorbed by its economic functioning, reduced to a neutral framework for future development requiring only a facade. In this way, the domino model points to the end of the city as a project, because the city is only the outcome of the transformation of the household into an economic apparatus. A machine that links living with ownership. The other possibility envisages a city where architecture, even in the infinitesimal scale of architectural form, can still be considered a project, a strategy that aims not simply at economic development but also at political legibility. The domino model, precisely because it has been stripped of any iconography and reduced to the brute objecthood of structure, resembles the grammar of architectural orders in its most essential logic, the post and lintel framework. As we have seen, the orders were not simply a way to express order and completeness, but also a tool for intelligibility. As such, architects assumed them both as a means to create an acceptable image for architecture and as a critical framework to alter or modify this legibility. The use of orders, like the use of any form of language, can be understood as both a means to an end and a means without an end, as something critical that does not necessarily lead to what a language, a form or the project is supposed to produce. The domino model is both the ultimate representation of the instrumentality of architecture and the moment in which architecture as pure potential is manifested. The city as a project is thus not only the possibility of radical change for the city, but also the possibility of maintaining the project as pure potential, as a way to keep the future of the city open-ended.